This podcast is sponsored by What They Believe series, a docu-series exploring faith through conversations. If your congregation would like to share your history and spirituality, go to whatthebelieveseries.com to find out how you can participate. Visit now to find new episodes and learn about supporting this project. The views and opinions expressed during I and the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to I and the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. All right, everybody, on this fine show, we'll be talking about farming. Fair warning, though, this is not that pastoral storybook old McDonald sort of stuff. We'll be talking about industrial-scale farming, the metric tons of fecal waste it puts out, and how that waste ruins communities and kneecaps lives. It's a big story, so we're breaking into two parts over two weeks. This evening, we will be speaking with Matt Wexler, the director of Right to Harm, a documentary about the impact of industrial agriculture and the people fighting an uphill battle to change their fate. All right, that's enough prelude. Let's get right into it, audience members. I am the Triangle is right now. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC's 88.1 I am the Triangle, and I'm currently speaking with Matt Wexler, the director of the documentary film Right to Harm. Hello, Mr. Wexler. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Welcome to Eye on the Triangle. Thanks for having me. So, what exactly is your documentary, Right to Harm, about? Yeah, so Right to Harm takes a look at the communities that live around large factory-like farming, otherwise known as CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, and specifically looks at the injustice to these communities in terms of the pollution they deal with and the state, local, and federal fights that they've been involved in. To get a mental picture of these operations, we're not talking about animals grazing in a field like you would normally think about, correct? No, we're talking about animals that are confined in buildings. In the hog industry, we're talking about tens of thousands of animals that are confined in these buildings. The main issue of what these community members are dealing with is how that waste is disposed of. And the current technologies that these industries are using haven't really changed since the 1980s in terms of how they manage waste from animals. The phrase that I hear, at least attached to court documents or industrial terms, is agricultural waste lagoon. Lagoon's kind of a nice word. (laughs) They call it a lagoon. It it is not the blue lagoon. It's not a beautiful place you want to be at. It's literally just a pit in the ground, a hole in the ground that holds anything that comes out of the back end of the animal. Oftentimes they're taking clean water to clean out the facilities in which these animals are defecating. So that's kind of another byproduct of the issue is is the fact that they're using potential drinking water as a way of combining it with waste and having that then go into these large lagoons. 
And you're not getting that water back after what they do with it, of course. Right. So in a lot of areas, they're dealing with the fact that this type of agriculture is used a large amount of the water resources available in the aquifers. Yes. Yeah, that would definitely be a concern. That is not a renewable resource, or if it is renewable, it's not renewable on a timescale that would be effectively beneficial to many communities. Yeah, for sure. Really what's going on is these communities are dealing with a lot of environmental problems causing serious health issues for these community members as they're dealing with water contamination of their own wells or they're dealing with air contamination in terms of the air that they're breathing. There's lots of data that links these issues to major health concerns. I want to focus in on these lagoons for a moment. Have you been on the ground with them? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you've you've been near one. Can you describe what it's like? It makes you want to throw up. It just makes you sick. It, it just uh, trying to smell it. Uh, that was certainly the worst part of making this film was going around and traveling places where hogs are raised or places where chickens are raised. Chickens is, is really, really bad in terms of the smell. Um, but just being around these cesspools of waste Uh, makes you want to throw up, makes you ill, makes your eyes water, makes your nose run, gives you a headache. And if you drive past it with the windows open, that smell might remain in the car for a couple hours. It could could remain on your clothes. You could be smelling it the next morning. So it really soaks into every bit of you, even if you're just going by it, correct? Yeah, if you're going by it just with the windows down, I mean, you're going to be smelling it for, for a long while after. What kind of scale are we talking about here? How large are these, and what kind of range do the effects have? Some of these cesspools are the size of five football fields put together. So they're massive. They're incredibly large. I know the dairy CAFOs in in Wisconsin hold somewhere between 60 and 90 million gallons of waste. That technology for how they're storing that waste has not changed since the 1980s. And if we were still using computers from the 1980s, that would just be kind of crazy, right? The industry has to look at this and say, we need, we need an updated way of handling this problem. Yes, and sorry if it sounds like I'm hovering around the idea of it, but I want to hammer home that these are essentially just massive open pits that contain biologically active, very toxic substances. Fecal matter is pretty rough on its own, and when you concentrate at that level and just kind of leave it exposed to the elements, it's quite nasty. But also, what's the methane content here? The thing that I think is more concerning than just the methane is the ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. Those are two compounds that build up in these cesspools because these are anaerobic in nature, meaning that there's not oxygen that is adequately utilized in the process of this waste disposal that allows for pathogens to die. So therefore, you have a lot of really bad compounds that build up from this and are released into the air and ammonia and hydrogen sulfide are the two that studies have shown have have really caused massive issues for people in terms of respiratory illnesses. Yeah, I mean, methane, methane is a problem in terms of the animals are producing the methane in the process, but there's a way of raising animals where the animals produce methane, but they offset their methane emissions through their carbon sequestration. So there, there are definitely ways of raising animals that are better than what is currently being used right now. Let's also narrow the scope here. Earlier you mentioned the effects on communities in North Carolina, people who have to live near these massive lagoons of waste. 
you mentioned respiratory ailments. You mentioned illnesses, contamination of the groundwater. What did you find in those communities? That they're afraid to speak out. That's the main thing. They're afraid to have their voices heard. There is definitely a sense that racism is, is, is still an issue as we're in eastern North Carolina. We're specifically dealing with mostly minority populations, both black and Latino and Native American populations as well. There's graphical data that shows that some of these issues are the worst in, in areas that are largely minority populated. And the hardest thing for me coming from the Midwest, when we came down to film in North Carolina and we attempted to kind of approach the topic the same way that we had approached it in Wisconsin and in Iowa and Arizona and other states, and we were met with a whole lot of resistance from locals, certainly on both sides. But the main reason was because this is such a touchy subject. Those on the side of the industry who didn't want us there and we would be followed out of town or if they saw us flying our drone, they would stop by and and hassle us. We didn't have our license plate photographed and apparently it was put on websites so people knew that we were in town not to be. It was kind of a way of these hog farmers to not spray manure on their land at that point in time, so we couldn't get any of the visuals of that. Then also community members themselves. There were a lot of community members who were really thankful that we were there recording this problem and including it in this film. And then there were a lot of community members that frankly didn't want us to be there because they may be employed by the hog industry and they don't necessarily want to be seen as people who oppose that or they don't want their neighbors to shoot out their windows or to harm them in any other sort of way. So there's a lot of anxiety around this whole topic in eastern North Carolina, and it's really upsetting to see that it crosses over into a lot of ethical boundaries. Why human decency and the racial issue have crossed over in this whole thing, I don't know why, but it's really sad to see. It boggles my mind just to think that that these areas could be even zoned for living, to have an industrial, and, you know, agricultural is the term, but you also mentioned it is an industrial process as well, the scale of it. How it can border a residential area at such close range? Yeah, I mean, the industry has has done a lot of work to make sure that they can zone their factory-like farms right next to people's houses. There have been setbacks created, say that there needs to be a minimal distance between the factory farms and people's houses. But I mean, you know, with the nuisance suits that are going on in North Carolina right now, the appeals are happening, you know, right now. And if just sitting in the courtroom for a couple of days, I sat in on one of the trials. It's just uh, my jaw just dropped at the evidence that they have of showing how everything from these large CAFOs factory farms uh, makes its way to these residential homes. During your documentary, you displayed images of individuals with incredible rashes across a very large percentage of their, of their skin. You spoke with many people about the effects. What have you seen? The hard part of it all is that we're talking about rural Americans who use well water, and that well water is made up of primarily water from their aquifers, but so much gets into that well water. And it doesn't take much for that well water to be contaminated and for that contamination to then affect a child to cause birth defects, uh, birth defects in animals and birth defects in humans. The baby disease is highly common in Wisconsin where the dairy 
CAFOs are prevalent. And certainly if you were to visit one of these local residents and drink their water, you would be met with potentially rotavirus, Campylobacter, Salmonella, E. coli. All of this has been found through USDA research studies to be in that water and it's been sourced back to these large lagoons and to these large CAFOs. And the companies refuse responsibility? They refuse responsibility. Most of the best research is fairly new. It's all research that was completed at the beginning of last year. It was USDA research study. So it is verified and it's peer-reviewed. It's highly factual. We have all the evidence we need at this point in time to show that community members are suffering through toxins in the air and toxins in their water, and now is the time to do something about it. And speaking of doing something about it, despite this suppression, despite what you described as almost intimidation, in fact, not even almost, that is legitimately intimidation. It's legitimately, yeah, legitimately intimidation, no doubt. Definitely. I'm sure you were certainly concerned for yourself and your crew as you were working on the field. Yes. This was a very, very uncomfortable film to make. All we wanted to do is shed on this side of agriculture, the side that most people don't see. I mean, we've there's been plenty of documentaries about what's going on inside some of these barns for the animals themselves and the lack of animal welfare, but there's there's been no films about the human welfare associated with those living around our most industrial areas of farming. With this information, with these nuisance cases, People are starting to push back despite that suppression, despite that intimidation. Yes, there is a lot of pushback that's happening, which is great. Um, And it's kind of like whack-a-mole, though. That's the thing is something kind of comes up, an issue that you want to try to fix, and you try to put out that fire, but then another fire starts, and then another fire starts. And so that's really the, the issue that these community members are dealing with is the fact that They will try to approach an issue with the hog industry or the dairy industry or chicken industry or whatever in one way, and maybe they're approaching it at a state level, or maybe they're even approaching it at a county level, and then the next thing that happens is that county or that state passes a new law that makes the way that they fought the issue illegal. And that has happened in the state of North Carolina, where they have suppressed the ability of community members to continue to fight for their own rights, primarily through these nuisance suits. How have they made progress despite this sort of unified front being put against them on both the ground and and also at the legislative side? Well, in North Carolina, nothing has really happened in the state of North Carolina that has favored the communities. Outside of a moratorium that was passed in the 1990s, stopping any more hog lagoons from being put in or any more hog confinement operations from being put in. At at this point in time, the chickens and turkeys is becoming even a larger issue than the hogs are themselves in the state of North Carolina because there's no regulations that are stopping those operations from coming in. In other states, there's been a lot of progress. States like Iowa, they've introduced moratorium bills to basically press the pause button on the permitting of these facilities, and that's a huge thing. You no, know, they're getting more and more sponsors in their state senate for those bills, and there's a movement in the state of Iowa. I think 27 of the 99 counties that are in that state are in favor of this moratorium. It's gaining huge ground, 
And then, you know, in our film, we see a couple small local battles that are kind of won. One in the state of Wisconsin, where they pass some county ordinances that make it very difficult for a CAFO to move in. In the state of Arizona, they've been fighting a lot about odor issues. The Arizona Department of Environmental Quality doesn't want to regulate odor. 37% of their complaints come from one chicken factory, a community that lives around them. The State Department is attempting to change the laws in a way that doesn't allow these community members to complain about odor. It was presented to their local Board of Health, and the Board of Health pressed the pause button on the potential change, and that was considered a win. In the state of North Carolina, what's needed is the legislators need to start listening to the community members and not just the ones that are in favor of the hog industry. So, I mean, North Carolina is probably the worst state for all of this in terms of the constant battle between the community members and the state legislators. For individuals who don't live near these hog farms, for individuals who don't have to worry about sharing their space with massive cesspits of, of waste, why should they care? How does this affect them? I think about two things when I think about that. You know, the first thing I think about is the fact that foodborne illnesses are a serious, serious problem in meat products these days. We've had larger E. coli contamination issues in the past couple of years than we've had in years prior. And we have a lot of salmonella outbreaks. And the number of recalls that are happening from these kinds of outbreaks is pretty serious. These issues, whether it's lettuce that's being recalled or whether it's broccoli that's being recalled, it's all from groundwater that's contaminated from one of these concentrated animal feeding operations. E. coli is not present in the water without it coming from a ruminant animal, a ruminant animal being a cow, a cattle, a sheep. So the only way a lettuce field is going to be contaminated with E. coli is if the water that's irrigating that field is contaminated from a nearby CAFO. We do an example in the film that shows the largest outbreak that happened in 2018 how literally it's lettuce fields that sit right next to a feedlot of 100,000 cattle. So if anyone thinks that those two are not related topics in E. coli outbreak and how this food is produced, then they should really think again about that. And I, I'm going to put antibiotic resistance in that category too. If anyone, you know, that this antibiotic resistance is primarily coming from the way that these animals are being raised. So if you're a person who becomes affected by antibiotic-resistant bacteria, highly consider the fact that that may have started in a hog confinement operation or in a cattle confinement operation or a chicken confinement operation. That's where a lot of these antibiotic-resistant bacteria form. You know, that's a big issue. The other thing that, you know, I really think about when I think about this as someone who does not live next to a CAFO or within a couple miles of one, is the fact that we have a, a massive, massive rural-urban divide that is happening right now in this country. And we have urbanites who don't see a need for rural communities to be thriving and for rural communities to be prosperous. This is a serious issue because the farm crisis that we are in right now is far and away worse than it was in the 1980s. All the statistics point to that. What we're seeing is the death of rural America. Uh, we're seeing the idea 
that quintessential small farmer and his contribution to our food system in this country, we're seeing that completely disappear. And at the heart of all this is these CAFOs, is these factory farms. They are the mothership of what's going on in our country. When you talk about grain production, those grains primarily go to feed these animals. So we're talking about the consolidation of an industry that is leading to rural America becoming the largest poverty group in the United States. And there was a Wall Street Journal article in 2017 that pointed to that very fact. So if people want to think about the differences between urbanite and rural Americans, they should really consider the fact that what we need to do as a society is we, we need to work towards building prosperous rural America. We need to consider the fact that how much better would we be if 4 million more people were working the land, like the number of people that were working farms in the 1930s. So there is kind of a solution, I think, to all this that where America comes out stronger. There's something to remember here, and that is the fact that although we have urbanized quite a bit over the last few decades, this actually hasn't eliminated these communities. They continue to function. They continue to do their best to live their lives, as anybody else would, of course. The thing is, is that just because they're out of everyone's field of vision doesn't mean they go away. In fact, it only makes them more vulnerable. It seems, at least as far as the companies that are involved here are concerned, that it would be very beneficial for people living next to these platforms, living next to these lagoons, to be in a state of impoverishment, to be in a state of a lack of wealth, a lack of uh, political power, because that is a station where they can't really enact change on their own. It's what allows the cycle to continue, which is really sad. I want to settle out in the country at some point in time. I'd like to have land. I'd like to grow my own food. I'd like to become a farmer. You know, I've now done two documentaries on the subject. It's just scary. It's scary to think about, to think as someone who lives in an urban area that I can move to the country and then the next thing I'm going to have to worry about is 50,000 hogs as my neighbor. It's a perpetual cycle right now that's going on. There's definitely a movement to keep people quiet. It's the status quo just remains. Before we let that Gibsonian nihilism set in all of our hearts, how can people enact change? Is this system fixed? Sure, it's rigged to continue as it is, but is there nothing anyone can do? I think there's something we can all do. There's no doubt about it. And I think it, it starts with education. I mean, the first thing is we need to acknowledge this problem is happening. And I mean, I myself, I won't bring myself to eat meat that's produced through the system. I do eat meat and I make sure that that meat is from a farm that I know of. And I make sure that that farm is using ethical practices. And that is my way of contributing to a better food system. And at some point in time, that better food system can become the norm in this country. It's not impossible. And it would employ a lot more people to do it. So for consumers out there, I would say, ask all the questions you need to ask to figure out where your meat was coming from. Ask how it was raised. Ask what the animal was fed. Was it on pasture? Was it not on pasture? There's a lot of health benefits to eating meat that is raised on pasture. And at, at the same time, people should also consider that as Americans, we eat two times the recommendation for meat 
by the USDA. So cutting our meat consumption would go a long ways in helping to solve this problem too. You also mentioned legislators. Now, there's a lot one can do in changing how the economic practices work by restricting their diet or or being more selective with what products they purchase. But what can be done about legislation not really keeping an ear out for the common man? On the legislative side, people can call their legislators, let them know that this is a serious issue, that they care about this. I know my local legislators in Illinois, they voted for a bill to eliminate odor standards on a federal level. They didn't know that they were voting for that because that bill was kind of tucked under the the bill that would put the government back in working form a year and a half ago or two years ago, whatever it was. When the government shutdown happened a couple years ago and they passed the the budget, what they also passed at the same time a couple agricultural laws that were snuck into there, and it's and it's how they get some legislators who I think would normally not vote for those things to vote for them. But the main thing is that when there's a hearing and there's an appeal or where there's something, if you can make your voice heard and if you could protest about it in front of your state capitol building or if you can call your legislator or if you can vote for someone who is going to is, who's going to go the right direction on this topic that would go a long way there's a way we can all work together on this whether you're somebody who works for the hog industry in North Carolina or whether you're somebody who's opposed to the hog industry there is a way we can work together to solve this right now we're not we're not working together, and it would just be really nice to see us working together. That's that's when humans are really at their best. Where can individuals find your film? So we're very pleased to be doing a theatrical week in Raleigh that starts on the 14th, so a week from on the 14th of February, and we'll be running until the 20th of February, and it's going to be at the Rialto Theater in Raleigh, and there's a ton of screenings during that period of time. And if someone can't catch one of those screenings, I, I would highly advise that they go to our website, righttoharm.film, and check out our film and, and consider hosting a screening themselves or uh, sign up for our newsletter so that they're made aware of when the film becomes public. Matt Wexler, thank you so much for coming on air. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That was Matt Wexler, the director of the documentary Right to Harm, and I am Aaron Kling. WKNC's 88.1 I on the Triangle. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for February the 21st, 2020. I'm Mike Clifford. A senior U.S. intelligence official told lawmakers last week that Russia wants to see President Trump re-elected. That from the Washington Post, according to people who were briefed on the comments. After learning of that analysis, which was provided to House lawmakers at a classified hearing, Trump erupted at his acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, in the Oval Office. The Post says Trump saw him and his staff as disloyal for speaking to Congress about Russia's perceived preference. The Post adds Trump announced Wednesday he was replacing McGuire with a vocal loyalist, Richard Grinnell, who is currently the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Starting on Monday, immigrants applying for green cards will be subject to the Trump administration's new public charge rule. Benefits used before February 24th will not count, and the changes do not include the use of WIC or Medi-Cal for children. At Placencia Consulting, immigration advocate Hector Placencia says before this, the feds only considered use of programs like supplemental security income, CalWORKs, and nursing home care under Medi-Cal. What is being added starting this coming Monday, February 24th, 
that's going to include CalFresh, housing, Section 8, and public housing, and federally funded Medicaid. The changes don't affect many immigrants, including those who are U.S. citizens, legal residents, refugees or asylees, DACA or TPS recipients, or those with U-visas and T-visas, which are for victims of violent crime, trafficking, and domestic violence. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the new rule, which the Trump administration argues is necessary to make sure that immigrants can support themselves financially. I'm Suzanne Potter. Folks in California concerned about the public charge rule can get more details on the website keepyourbenefitsca.org. Nebraska lawmakers considering two bills that proponents say would help low-income families and businesses across the state struggling to find workers by expanding access to affordable child care. Julia Zeb with Voices for Children in Nebraska says parents need to know their children are in a safe environment while they're at work. And with the average cost of child care for an infant at $12,000 a year, she says many working families can't get by without help. If we allowed more families to be eligible for child care assistance, there would be over 1,500 Nebraska mothers that would enter the workforce, and we would see 3,300 fewer Nebraska children living in poverty. LB 1049, set to be heard Friday by the Health and Human Services Committee, would expand eligibility for child care assistance. LB 329, which has cleared committee, would allow parents to keep getting assistance as their wages rise, up to 200% of the federal poverty level. I'm Eric Galatis. This is... PMS. Civil rights organizations say bills introduced this session in the Missouri legislature, part of a larger-scale attack against LGBT individuals. According to the ACLU, dozens of measures are pending in states across the country that would undermine the rights of people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, including 15 bills in Missouri. Hormone therapy can be life-affirming for trans youth as they make their transition and try to be true to who they are. And getting affirming care greatly decreases the risk of suicide in the LGBT community. But the legislature has tried to take a very pejorative view towards that essential life-affirming care. Sarah Baker with the ACLU of Missouri cites House Bill 1721 as one example. It would prohibit doctors from administering hormone therapy for transgender youth. Mary Sherman reporting. A bill that passed unanimously in the West Virginia Senate is being seen by environmental groups as an important step towards reducing fossil fuel use in coal country. Senate Bill 583 would allow Mountain State Power Companies to provide solar energy for the first time, according to Jim Coatsen with the Sierra Club. But the bill also specifies that no solar farm would reduce the amount of coal-fired electricity produced in the state. Coatsen says it's a compromise that at least allows businesses and consumers to choose solar, while calming worries about the struggling coal industry. There are some concerns about consumers and ratepayer impacts that a more progressive bill might have addressed. Nevertheless, the bill is a step forward because it does give our utilities a chance to start putting some solar-powered electricity into the grid. The legislation moves on to the House this week. The West Virginia Coal Association opposes it, saying it would put more coal miners out of work. I'm Diane Bernard. Finally, our Mark Bowen tells us the Bank of North Dakota recently celebrated its 100th anniversary. He tells us the nation's only state-owned bank continues to have impact across the region. The bank is lauded for its independence from the commercial sector and its ability to benefit people's lives. Outside of student loans, it rarely loans money directly to people or businesses. 
Instead, it partners with local institutions to leverage the state's deposits in hopes of boosting smaller banks. Rick Clayberg, who heads the North Dakota Bankers Association, says the bank has been able to thrive because of how it's allowed to operate under the state's purview. You know, they certainly will allow it to take some risks that a general institution couldn't take. Risk-taking aside, the bank in North Dakota has had a positive net income every year since 1966. Critics question the bank's connection to agencies in need of resources to take actions like cracking down on protesters. This story was produced with original reporting from Oscar Perry Abello for Yes Media. I'm Mike Clifford. Thanks for wrapping up your week with Public News Service. We are member and listener supported and online at publicnewsservice.org. That's it for the first half of our show, everyone. We'll be continuing this story on industrial-scale farming next week with an interview with community representatives and their side of the battle against the industry. Hope to see you all there. Thank you to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants who'd like to become part of the Eye on the Triangle team. Tonight's episode of Eye on the Triangle can be enjoyed in a podcast format through Transistor and through WKNC's Twitter. Our opening music for tonight was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed to Creative Commons Attribution, not commercial 3.0 license. Stay tuned for all your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.